Hello, I'm Barbara Ann Garcia, healthcare advocate, strong woman athlete, and the host of Healthcare Untold. Healthcare Untold is a podcast dedicated to giving voice to everyday heroes and their untold health stories that can improve healthcare to our most vulnerable communities. Our return guest today is Dr. Sandra Hernandez, the CEO of the California Health um, Foundation. Uh, welcome to Healthcare Untold, uh, Dr. Hernandez. Thank you, Barbara Ann. Nice to be back with you. We so appreciate your COVID updates. And today we're going to be talking about vaccines. And we're seeing vaccines everywhere in your social media, on TV. And so we thought, uh, you know, we had our discussion, Dr. Hernandez, we thought it would be good to um, explain, you know, the differences, um, but really talk about the COVID-19 vaccine um, and, um, you know, we're using a different type of model um, called mRNA vaccine. And so I thought you could uh, share with the listening audience, um, you know, exactly how does the mRNA vaccine work? Sure. So um, it's, a, it's what we call a messenger RNA. Uh, it, an RNA is just a very small collection of proteins. Um, this is not a new technology at all. Uh, we've had messenger RNA as a medical tool for better part of two decades. Um, it's being used as a technology for treatment of cancer. Um, so the first thing I would say is it is not a new technology. It's one that we quickly reprogrammed to be able to use it uh, against uh creating some protection against COVID-19 infection. The virus COVID-19 is just a virus, uh, and it has unique genes that create unique proteins. And all we're doing is taking a tiny piece of protein in these, this messenger RNA and getting it into people so that their immune system has a head start in creating a immune response to this virus were somebody's body to see it. It's safe. It's easy to make. It's relatively inexpensive. And it, we got it fast because we had both the technology previously available to us and also we were rapidly able to understand the genes that constitute the COVID virus itself. We have two vaccines available currently in the United States, not widely available, but being delivered today to healthcare workers and people over the age of 75. Um, and in essence, uh, what we're doing, you know, feels like rapid development of a vaccine, but it's because we had the tools and the technology already available across the country uh, labs in this Moderna vaccine, for example, is made in Massachusetts. The Pfizer vaccine, which is also available in the United States, likewise um, made uh, in, in, in the United States. And there are other vaccines that will soon also be determined to be both effective and safe and get in the market probably as soon as, you know, mid-March, mid-April. Uh, and certainly by midsummer, I would expect we'll have at least two more vaccines that will be approved for emergency use against COVID. 
And that's great. And I understand that, um, you know, over two decades of experience with um, this mRNA. And so, you know, we're in good hands in terms of the understanding of it from our uh, pharmaceutical companies. And um, I was going to ask you, Dr. Hernandez, like the flu vaccine where, you know, every year sometimes you might get a different mixture of a flu vaccine just because there's different strains or what they're calling variants. I assume that, um, you know, we'll have to um, every year kind of focus in on the different variants of the, um, of the COVID-19 and um, try to regulate the mRNA to ensure that um, they're also being protected from the different variants that we're finding from the mutation of this virus. Yes, that's right. Um, you know, viruses mutate uh, in, in large part because they're just over and over and over and over repeating the making of these same proteins. And when you do that over and over and over again, you make mistakes. Mutations are just mistakes that the virus made. Sometimes those mistakes make it less effective uh, in terms of creating infection. Uh, it might make a little tweak in this protein or a little tweak in that protein. And what we're doing right now is monitoring all those changes in their decoding, right? And those are mutations. Turns out coronavirus historically this is not the first coronavirus we've seen. COVID-19 is one of other SARS coronaviruses. They generally don't mutate that fast. This one is mutating very fast because we have a lot of infection and we haven't done anything to slow down the rate at which it's reproducing itself and therefore it's making a lot of these mistakes, which are changes in the proteins that it makes while we're trying to make vaccines against certain component parts, namely the spike uh, areas. That's where we've targeted these vaccines on the spike protein because that's the part of the virus that connects to the human cell that then causes infection. And then, you know, 1% of the population that gets infected will actually succumb to the disease. So we have a lot of virus out there. It's replicating super fast making mistakes in its replication, those mutations do change the virus. That happens with flu vaccine, actually even more than it does coronavirus vaccines. Thus, every year you have to update your vaccination to make sure you're creating the immunity against the changes that occurred during those mutations. So one of our important um, obligations then is to get as many people vaccinated as possible to reduce these mutations and also to get as many people, you know, it's almost like when we were doing HIV and AIDS work, Dr. Hernandez, it's that viral load, trying to reduce that viral load in the, in the country by getting people vaccinated and also not for them to get infected um, through the public health um, practices that, you know, we've learned so well um, and now double masking is being asked of us so that um, because uh, some of the variants are so sensitive to be able to transmit. And of course, uh, washing of hands and distancing and even distancing a little farther than what we anticipated with six feet. Uh, talk to us about a little bit of that supply chain in your, in your, your view and, um, you know, with a new administration really focused, number one, they didn't know how many vaccine in the supply chain they had. 
but that will change and will be, um, and like you said, I think that, you know, the vaccine can be um, produced pretty quickly. Um, and so it does seem to, to me that that supply chain will get better and better um, as we, um, in the next coming months. That's right. Um, I, I'm very optimistic that um, the so-called supply chain, that is um, the taking it from manufacturing labs, transporting it to hospitals and clinics and distribution sites, safely storing it. The one thing about these vaccines, in particular the Pfizer vaccine, it has to be kept very, very, very cold, as in minus 70 degrees. That makes the transport of it, the cold storage of it, is not someplace that you can just do anywhere because there aren't a lot of places that have freezers that go that cold. Um, so all of those logistics of how you get it from a man and why do you need it cold is because that little messenger RNA that we talked about needs to be wrapped into something. And what it's wrapped into needs to be super cold in order for it to be effective uh, to be able to safely uh, to be safely vaccinate people with it. So both the uh, the vaccines that are on the market today are messenger RNA and require um, very unique ways in which to transport it safely so that it's still effective when you uh, actually inject it into somebody's arm. And of course, both of those vaccines also require two doses. Uh, in the case of Moderna, you need a second dose three, roughly three weeks later and Pfizer roughly four weeks later. So getting a second dose. So even if you have 100 million doses, that's only, you know, half of that in terms of people who can be fully immunized. That is, their immune system is fully primed to fight COVID. Um, President Biden has a plan to dramatically increase the manufacturing, to dramatically be able to change the data capability to know how much you have, where it is, how many single doses of what, of what vaccine, where did it go, make sure you have enough for the second doses three and four weeks later. So there was a lot uh, to be done to make sure we got as much virus, uh, as, excuse me, as much vaccine out as possible. What we're aiming for, and you alluded to this in your remarks, is something we call herd immunity. So in a herd of 100 people, you want 70% of them or 70 people of 100 to have been vaccinated or who have had the virus and have natural immunity. That is what will slow community spread of COVID. And that is what you are trying to do to reduce the number of people who need hospitalization, who need respiratory therapy, who need antiviral therapy, who need to be hospitalized or who don't, um, you know, might not survive. So we're aiming for herd immunity. We're aiming to get in a hundred people, 70 of them need to be vaccinated fully uh, and or have had the infection and have natural immunity. Now, there are a lot of things we still don't know. Remember, we've only been at this really one year. 
it was a year ago this month that we determined what the gene code was for COVID. Really, one year. Yeah. And we're already vaccinating healthcare workers and people over that's the age pretty... of 75 and 65, depending on where you are. And that's pretty incredible. Now, I mean, we should just. It's, it's that, astounding. Right? It's astounding. Yeah. It, it's science on, you know, on, uh, you know, overdrive. Uh, it's science moving at a very, very rapid rate. I mean, if you compare it to the HIV epidemic, you know, from the time we identified uh, HIV as a virus, uh, the virus that causes uh, that problem with one's immune system, um, it was literally four years before we had a decent drug, single antiviral, That's right. to fight it, That's right. let alone the combinations that we're using today. Um, think about we're a year in, we already have an antiviral that we give to people who are really sick. We know the antibodies that help people survive a moderate infection, these monoclonal antibodies that we're using, and combinations of antibodies that we're using. People who have had the virus develop their own antibodies. They can donate plasma. We can get plasma uh, treatments. So we, in a year, have done learned an enormous amount about this virus, about how to manage the clinical disease, and we have two vaccines on the market that are highly effective, by the way. Should note, we recommend people get the flu vaccines. Flu vaccines are about 60 to 70% effective. These vaccines are 90 to 95% effective. So safer, effective, cheaper to make, a little hard to transport, and, you know, that's something that this administration is very much focused on. And now what people need to do is get vaccinated. Exactly. And, you know, with the Johnson & Johnson one-dose vaccination, that could be a game, another game-changer in terms of the number of people that can be vaccinated quickly and also um, build, again, that herd immunity um, throughout our communities. That's absolutely right. Johnson & Johnson reported uh, yesterday that uh, they will go to the FDA and request emergency authorization within the next 10 days. And they expect, if it's approved, that they'll have 100 million doses available by June. Um, yeah, that's fantastic. So I don't think you report that publicly unless you're ready to do it. That's right. So, and you're right, because it's only a single dose, that will dramatically reduce um the difficulties that we have in the supply chain with the messenger RNA vaccines that we talked about. Johnson & Johnson is not a messenger RNA virus, a vaccine that works differently, um, but it works in a very traditional way uh, in terms of how it gets the immune system to get a jump start on the virus. Very good. And so let's talk about vaccine equity, because one of the, you know, you and I have been talking about this for months now, about making sure that our communities, one, really have the understanding of how important it is to get vaccine, and that's why we're doing these COVID updates. And uh, because I think our listening audience is, um, you know, a, a very Latino-focused community and also um, health-focused community. But, um, you know, it's going to be really important to ensure that um, the information about vaccines and as, um, as important, if not more, access to the vaccine. And some of the ways that, you know, we've 
always have used in public health in terms of really working with organizations who are working with community members. And they have, in many communities, have created their priority list. And in some, it's it's somewhat different because as an example in New Mexico, they found that the, um, the mortality rate with people with hypertension was much higher than anything else. You know, cardiovascular, of course, that, that that's part of it. But, um, you know, they started pri- prioritizing hypertension and those with hypertension as being our top priority in New Mexico. In the San Francisco Bay Area, essential workers have become a really important uh, population because of the fact that they're out there being exposed and coming home to their multi-generational families. So, you know, I think it's important that you have different ways and different priorities within each community. And so that is all really good, but it does cause some confusion when you're hearing different um, priorities in different communities. But some of it makes a lot of sense. Um, But you can read through the lines right now with how people are trying to jump lines. And so I just think vaccine equity is going to be really important for us to continue to focus on. And really, we know that African-Americans and uh, Latino-Americans and Latinx communities are at the highest rate of... um, of uh, this transmission of, of the COVID-19 virus than any other communities in the United States. Well, they are absolutely right. I mean, um, higher uh, infection rates, higher hospitalization rates, and higher mortality rates. Uh, that's true for our Black community, for our Latinx community, for our, our Native American communities. It's true for our Alaskan Native communities. Um, and uh, I think your point about vaccine equity is is a really important one. Um, the um, the challenges, of course, are the complexities and fragmentation of you know who knows if you have hypertension. If you're 59 and you have hypertension, how how do you prioritize that person uh, who you know may be an essential worker? with somebody who's well, has good medical care, and is 65, right? I mean, these are all, and, and the 65 cutoff or 75 cutoff is based on the fact that if you look at all races and all ethnicities, um, the mortality rate if you're over the age of 60, uh, over the age of 75 is more than 200-fold than if you're 45. Um, so, so age plays an enormous part in mortality, which is why on the 1A, the first priority group to get vaccine was healthcare workers and elderly people living in uh, residential congregate settings, nursing homes, et cetera. Um, so the age phenomenon is huge. It is also simpler. You're either 65 or you're not. You're either 75 or you're not, right? I mean, those are things that are easier to assess. But I think your point about point of service and how do you think about an equitable distribution is hugely important. And there are, as you mentioned, in New Mexico, likewise here in California, uh, for, for example, one hospital system in Los Angeles has decided that it is it vaccinated its entire uh, workforce in that hospital, including uh, housekeeping and janitorial and dietary. Those positions are very typically 
um, people of color. And what they have done is said the next group they are going to prioritize are the elderly family members of those workers. That's a way in which you can keep it simple and reach deeply into these families where essential workers live. So multi-generational approach. Multi-generational uh, As we would always say, a familia approach, right? So Exactly. Because, um, no, I mean, you know, this living. is how we, that's exactly right. So there are ways to use the science and be equitable and intentional about vaccine distribution. And that's a very good example of one. Yeah. And so I do think that as the supply gets better, equity will get better, access will get better. And, uh, you know, my hope, and I have lots of hope as well, Dr. Hernandez, is that as the flu vaccine, you know, um, there's sometimes shortages per year, but for the most part, you know, if you want to get a flu vaccine, you can get access to a flu vaccine. And that's my hope for COVID-19 vaccine, that, you know, um, this is a, uh, a little difficult time for us right now, and it'll get better because the access to vaccines is going to be getting really, really good in the near future. I think. Yeah, I, I'm optimistic as you are, Baran. I think the one other point, though, that I would make is that even with vaccines on the market and vaccinations starting to happen, we need to continue to wear masks. We need to continue to do social distancing. We need to continue to do frequent hand washing. Those are all things that, because we are nowhere near herd immunity, uh, and so the worst thing we can do is say, oh, I got my first dose of vaccine. I'm not going to, you know, I'm going to invite so-and-so over for dinner or I'm going to go, you know, outside and do whatever without a mask. We, no one knows who's been vaccine, vaccinated and who hasn't. And remember that these vaccine trials, which showed these vaccines to be very safe and very eff effective for the person who got the vaccine. That does not necessarily mean that if that person comes in contact with the virus, their immune system might react perfectly, which we expect it will. However, it doesn't mean that that person can't transmit it to somebody who has not been vaccinated for whatever reason. And, that's, and so- Yeah, that's right. And I think it's really important that you overemphasize that issue one is there is an immunity um, build up, so to speak, for post first vaccina vaccination. Again, I think anywhere between 10 and 12 days, they're saying. And then again, for your second dose and, you know, and the continuation of masks and the public health precautions that I think we've been getting better at. I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I think that um, um, everybody's anxious to get back to um, our, our, our lives and our families and our loved ones and our colleagues. Um, I, I think, though, that what we ought to do is make sure we don't put our guard down. I think we should um, be very attentive to the recommendations that are being made. Um, by public health officials who are really trying to do exactly what you said, think about how to be equitable, uh, how to manage the resources that we have, 
uh, and uh, and be mindful of what all of us need to do as citizens and residents, which is to take all of the public health precautions and abide by them. That is the, the most important thing that we can do. And if you're eligible for a vaccine, very much encourage people to do that. And in the meantime, masks and masks and social distancing need to continue to be a way of life. Well, Dr. Hernandez, as always, um, we really wanna thank you for your COVID update with us today. And uh, thank you so much for being uh, a, a returning guest at Healthcare Untold. Thank you so much, Dr. Hernandez. Thank you, Barbara, and always nice to be with you.